Wizard, Little Matt, Sweet Sandy Whiskers, Old Kinderhook, King Matt, The Little Magician, The Red Fox. Those are just a few of the nicknames given by friends and enemies to the 8th President of the United States, Martin Van Buren. Before you start wondering if you've inadvertently clicked on the wrong link, this is the Harrison Podcast, and I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Though we typically center our discussion on the ninth president of the United States, William Henry Harrison, I thought it would be beneficial to look more closely at his immediate predecessor. As we left off in our last Topic Focus episode, Van Buren had proposed his independent treasury scheme to address the nation's fiscal problems. I promise I'll come back to that shortly. But for now, let's turn the clock back a little bit and journey in our minds to Kinderhook, New York. Martin Van Buren was born in Kinderhook on December 5, 1782. That makes him the first president who was not born as a British citizen, as the revolution was all but over at that point. As his name suggests, he was of Dutch ancestry, and indeed is the only president to date whose first language was not English. Given more modern arguments about establishing English as the official language of the U.S., it is rather ironic that the first president born as an American wasn't a native English speaker. But I digress. Van Buren's father was a tavern owner. Now, before you get the wrong idea, it wasn't a Wild West type saloon with drunken carousing. Taverns were local gathering places as well as sometimes inns for travelers. With nine kids and six slaves, from my readings it sounds like the Van Buren stuck to food rather than trying to find a few inches of space in their cramped accommodations to pay someone to sleep, though that was not necessarily unheard of for other taverns of the time. Van Buren learned politics from his father and was exposed to political meetings at an early age as both Federalist and Jeffersonian Republicans used the family's tavern as a meeting place. Van Buren ended up being a delegate to a district political convention by the age of 18. He quickly rose in the ranks of New York politics and was elected to the Senate in 1821 to join such figures as Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, Andrew Jackson, and yes, even William Henry Harrison was a Senate colleague of Van Buren. Despite a large part of Van Buren's career being associated with his political partnership with Andrew Jackson, it should be noted that Jackson was not Van Buren's pick for president in 1824. At a time when half of then-President James Monroe's cabinet was in the running, Van Buren rallied support for Secretary of the Treasury William H. Crawford and was his de facto campaign manager in the traditional Congressional Nominating Caucus. Had Crawford been of better health, it is quite possible that he could have been elected and would have predated Jimmy Carter as the first president from Georgia by over 150 years. Crawford, however, had suffered a stroke in the year before the election and ended up finishing third in the electoral vote behind Adams and Jackson. Van Buren was never once take defeat lying down, so he went searching to find the best candidate for the coming election and finally gravitated into Jackson's orbit. The election of 1828 not only propelled Andrew Jackson into the White House, but also Martin Van Buren into the New York governor's mansion. Due to Van Buren's role in supporting Jackson's second presidential run, 
He was awarded the position of Secretary of State in the incoming administration, and thus only served as Governor of New York for 43 days, the shortest term in the state's history to date, before packing up and heading to Washington, D.C. Besides taking up the responsibility of heading up the nation's diplomatic corps, Van Buren's diplomatic skills were put to the test in trying to bring the new cabinet together during what was dubbed the Petticoat Affair. Jackson had invited John Eden, an associate from Tennessee, to become Secretary of War in his cabinet. Eden had just married the recently widowed Peggy O'Neill Timberlake, whose husband, it was rumored, had been posted to the U.S. Navy's Mediterranean Squadron, a post procured with Eden's assistance, in order to be out of the way for John and Peggy to carry out an affair. Even without that, it was believed that the couple had, well, coupled during Peggy's brief widowhood. Due to the scandalous circumstances of their marriage, the wives of Jackson's cabinet members, as well as Floride Calhoun, Vice President John C. Calhoun's wife, refused to pay the customary courtesy calls on Mrs. Eden or to invite the Edens for visits. This shunning of Peggy Eden brought back memories of the attacks on the character of his own recently departed wife in the 1828 election, and thus, for Jackson, the matter became a personal crusade, as well as a golden opportunity for Van Buren to further ingratiate himself to Jackson. The long-widowed Van Buren unhesitatingly paid calls on the Edens, so Jackson increasingly turned to Van Buren for support in various matters. The situation was finally resolved when Jackson called on the resignations of his entire cabinet, including Van Buren, and only retained his postmaster general in his previous post. Van Buren was sent as U.S. Minister to Britain in a recess appointment. However, when his nomination came up before the Senate for confirmation, he was rejected due to the tie-breaking vote of his rival, Calhoun. Senator Thomas Hart Benton remarked to a fellow senator who had voted against Van Buren that, quote, you have broken a minister and elected a vice president. Indeed, Van Buren returned from England as the Democratic Party's nominee for vice president, and the Jackson-Van Buren ticket would go on to handily defeat the National Republican ticket headed by Henry Clay. This put Van Buren in prime position to succeed Jackson at the end of his term in 1837. However, he learned during the election and upon taking office what it truly meant to succeed Old Hickory. Though Jackson retired to the Hermitage after March 1837, he continued to guide the party, both as a living symbol and as a behind-the-scenes manager. Not only was he consistently writing to Van Buren during the New Yorker's term of office, but he was also receiving regular reports on the happenings in Washington, D.C. from Francis Blair, as well as other correspondents, and freely giving advice as to what should be done in terms of governmental policy. As his biographer Robert Remini noted, Quote, even when not asked for a comment on national issues, Jackson readily provided one when he felt so inclined. He watched the progress of events in Washington with undiminished interest and regularly signaled his concern, pleasure, apprehension, or whatever else he felt to the Democratic leadership. The moment the mail arrived at the Hermitage, his first inquiry was for the daily Washington newspapers and the letters bearing the postmark of the Capitol. Van Buren was careful to not let any discomfort at such interference show publicly, but one can imagine how he must have felt, and it certainly did not help to make his job any easier. As previously discussed, the Panic of 1837 began just after Van Buren took office. 
The nation had suffered economic downturns in the past, but this was unprecedented for the nation to that date. Moreover, the effects went beyond the balance sheets. As Jessica Lepler noted in her thesis on the Panic of 1837, quote, Panic people struggled with the question of whether they themselves, God, nature, or some combination, was to blame for the commercial crisis. They did not think in terms of economic indicators and global specie flows. The people needed strong leadership to give them confidence as well as a plan on how to recover. However, Van Buren was not a magnetic, take-charge leader like Jackson. He was more nuanced, acting behind the scenes and utilizing the executive and political machines to carry out his policies. With that in mind, he took the summer while waiting for the special session he had called for September to develop a proposal on how to address the administration's immediate problem of having funds on hand to continue running. As noted two episodes prior, the government's funds were locked in the various deposit banks across the nation that had stopped paying out in specie as they didn't have enough on hand to satisfy all of its deposits and would fail if they tried to pay back all of their depositors. After much discussion and insight from various Democratic leaders and businessmen from across the nation, the administration focused in on a plan that had been floated around previously, but had been thought out by John Brokenborough, President of the Bank of Virginia, and sent to Van Buren and Senator William C. Reeves. The plan would come to be known as the Independent Treasury, or the Sub-Treasury System. In essence, Brokenborough proposed cutting out the middleman. Instead of storing deposits either in state deposit banks or a national bank chartered by the government, his proposal was to have the U.S. Treasury store its own deposits so that the funds would be readily available whenever needed. They were already being forced to house new federal monies collected in Treasury and post offices, so this proposal would make those plans formal policy as well as providing a storage repository once funds were freed from the state deposit banks. A similar idea of chartering a bank in the District of Columbia had been considered and rejected by Jackson previously, and likewise, this plan quickly developed strong Democratic enemies, including Senators Reeves and Nathaniel P. Talmadge. Due to the efforts of conservative Democrats, who felt that Jackson's bank plan should be retained, with possible reform to ensure the availability of the federal deposits, and fearful that housing the funds in the Treasury would endanger the state banks, the special session came and went without the implementation of Van Buren's independent treasury. Then the regular session came and went, and another, and another. It would not be until July 4, 1840, when Van Buren would finally sign the independent treasury bill into law after fighting tooth and nail with his own party and the legacy of Jackson in order to do so. Jackson was not afraid to let his displeasure about certain policies be known, and in particular, he was opposed to the administration's fiscal program, as he and other Jacksonites felt that it was too lenient on the banks. Jackson even confided as much to Amos Kendall in a letter of March 23, 1838, when he said, quote, Had my voice been heard, I would have brought suit against every bank that dishonored the government draft upon it, and adopted every energetic means to have met the debts of the government, regardless of the cries of the bankers, stockholders, speculators, and gamblers. Van Buren, likewise, started to chafe under Jackson's mighty thumb. 
One notable example is Van Buren's continued support for his vice president, Richard Mentor Johnson. Despite controversy over Johnson's open relationship with his slave, and despite Jackson's explicit rejection of Johnson in favor of his political ally and protege, Tennessee Governor James K. Polk, Van Buren's way would win out, though, and Johnson would remain on the ticket. However, the ticket was increasingly showing signs of being a losing one. Upon seeing the warning signs of Van Buren's potential election loss to Harrison in 1840, Jackson, as noted by Remini, quote, felt obliged to do more than sit at home and pen letters and directives to his friends and newspaper editors around the country. He left the Hermitage and went out on the campaign trail to attempt to counteract the effect that Harrison's campaigning was having. He felt that he was the only one who could save the day for the Democrats. However, he would be sorely disappointed when Van Buren and various Democrats across the country lost in their respective elections. For Jackson, the election was a personal blow and proved to him that, quote, corruption, bribery, and fraud has been extended over the whole union. However, for Van Buren, it might have come as somewhat of a relief after one of the more difficult presidencies to that date of the Republic's history. Indeed, he described himself by saying that he, quote, scarcely felt the catastrophe when it occurred, and his letters immediately after the election are noted by editors as reflecting a sense of calm. After receiving a warm reception in New York City, Van Buren retired to his new home, Lindenwald, in Kinderhook. However, the year wasn't out before Van Buren was letting folks know that he would not reject being nominated for president again by the Democratic Party. He was not so subtle in his wink-wink, nudge-nudge attempts to build support for a possible run against the Whig candidate of 1844, though he did try as much as possible to cloak himself in the traditional aloofness to actively seeking the presidency. It was not to be, however. The little magician would never again return to the presidency, and each of his presidential runs seemed to make him even less of a force in either Democratic or the overall nation's political landscape. Van Buren would go on to seek the Democratic nomination in 1844, and in a complete break from the Jackson faction, stood as the Free Soil candidate for president in 1848. His path to the Free Soil Party began in 1844 when he issued a public letter asserting that the president should not be, quote, influenced by local or sectional feeling on the issue of admitting Texas into the Union, and should instead work through diplomatic means towards Texas independence and ending its conflict with Mexico before putting the issue of annexation before Congress. This was not what Jackson wanted, and he and his surrogates, including Francis Blair's Washington Globe, came out publicly for immediate annexation and thus against Van Buren. The issue of Texas by this point had become wrapped up with the issue of slavery. Ever since the Missouri Compromise of 1820, there had been a strong contingent that felt that slavery should expand westward, while there was an ever-growing group of people who felt that slavery should be contained so that it could eventually be eliminated. Texas would enter the Union as a slave state and thus became a flashpoint of dispute. As mentioned in the episode about politics of the time, slavery was increasingly becoming a topic of discussion and contention in politics, and the expansion issue defeated Van Buren in what had previously been considered the presidential nomination that was his for the taking, and James K. Polk instead assumed office in 1845 as the 11th President of the United States. By 1848, 
The flames of discontent were ever higher as the Mexican War had been fought and won, and the United States had full claim to not only Texas, but nearly the whole of what is now the American Southwest. Debate raged over whether to prohibit or sanction slavery in the new territories, and Van Buren, like many Americans, had a choice to make. In the spring of 1848, he outlined his thoughts in a lengthy work which drew upon the works of the founders and the historical record to date in order to establish himself firmly in opposition to the expansion of slavery. This issue split the Democratic Party into two factions, with the barn burners, those opposed to the expansion of slavery, deciding to form their own party and, despite his professed reluctance, nominated Van Buren for the presidency. In an ironic twist, Charles Francis Adams, the son of the man who Van Buren had helped to drive out of the presidency in 1828, was now his running mate. However, theirs was a quixotic quest, and the split in the Democratic vote led to the second and last Whig to be elected president. After this, Van Buren withdrew from active participation in politics, and instead went on a trip to Europe, worked on a lengthy history of political parties in the United States, and watched as the nation that he had once served as president fell apart into civil war. He would not live to see it come back together as he died in the early morning of July 24, 1862, over 21 years after the death of Harrison. Van Buren leaves a complicated legacy. In many ways, he's much more akin to modern politicians than he was to national leaders of his own time. He was constantly in search of new opportunities for political advancement and worked to build up a powerful electioneering machine. However, as time went on, he became a slave to the machine of his own creation and thus suffered a heavy fall. Speaking from my personal experience, I have struggled over the years to connect to Van Buren. He represents so much of the worst of politics and, for political expediency, condoned slavery as well as carried out the Indian Removal Act. He fought to have Africans who were illegally taken captive by the Spanish and who made a bid for freedom aboard the Amistad given back to their kidnappers to be sold into slavery. He did all of this while sitting in luxurious settings and mansions. Is there any redemption to such a man? It should be remembered when considering Van Buren that there was little public support at the time for people of color and Native Americans, and his public break on the issue of the expansion of slavery was a major move forward for one with Van Buren's past. However, he didn't exhibit this type of bravery, if it can be called that, at a time when he had the power to effect change. It was only after he was long removed from the halls of power, with little to no chance of returning to them, that he started to speak out. Ultimately, it's not for us to judge, but rather to learn from Van Buren's life. I hope this has proven informative, and that you'll join me on the next episode, when we turn the focus back to old Tippecanoe and take a closer look at his family. Till then, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the show, please feel free to reach out to me at Harrison Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, the blog is available at whhpodcast.com. Dot blueberry that's b l u b r r y dot com and a special thanks goes out this week to a dear friend amy buchanan who without hesitation answered my request to provide us with a rendition of a van buren campaign song to add a special touch to this episode's intro i think it helped to frame this van buren focused episode and shows that the Whigs weren't the only ones taking well-known tunes and adding campaign lyrics to them in 1840 Thank you so much, Amy, for indulging your presidentially inclined friend. Thanks for listening, 
and I'll see you next time.